Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 46 of Canines Talking Sense. Before I get into this episode in this great interview that I have, I want to take a minute and thank some show sponsors. I want to thank Cy Canine, Dr. Michelle Mon, and Jenna Gadbury. If you haven't heard what a TAD is or a training aid delivery device, go check out SciCanine.com. That's www.s as in Sam, C as in Charlie, I as in India, K as in Kilo, number nine. Dot com So that's SciCanine.com. Go check them out. Also want to thank Precision Explosives. Precision Explosives is the home of the odor imprint. So you can use things like real explosive material for odor, narcotics, bed bugs. What they do is they infuse the real odor onto these materials so that us as canine handlers and trainers can actually train the dogs on real odor without needing the licenses or permits. We don't have to use synthetics. We can actually use real odor material that Precision Explosives has put together. So go check out their website, www.pre-exp.com. Go check out the website. Go see their products. It's a great resource for those of you that need to train with real materials, but have to deal with, uh, like I said, licensing or permitting issues. This is a great way to get to, to deal with that. Also, big shout out I want to give to Canines United. I want to give uh, some shout outs to some nonprofits. Canines United was just out here in Los Angeles, and they're actually based in Florida. They're on the East Coast mostly. They're, they're expanding quite a bit. But Debbie Johnson and my good friend Jay Nix have been really expanding what this nonprofit does. They specialize in providing training, education, equipment, even dogs to various agencies that need it. So they were just out here in Los Angeles. They worked with Mike Goosby and his program at LAPD. A lot of great training happened for a lot of teams in Southern California. So Los Angeles, California Highway Patrol, Beverly Hills, you name it. There's a lot of them out there. Had some great training. Next one is Spike's Canine Fund. Spike's Canine Fund is another great nonprofit that helps with education, medical, things of that nature, 
really good program run by a former Navy SEAL. Go check out Spike's Canine Fund. And then lastly, Warrior Dog Foundation. Those that don't know Warrior Dog Foundation, this was set up by Mike Ritland, former Navy SEAL. He also has a pretty famous podcast, Mike Drop Podcast. If you don't or haven't heard of the Mike Drop Podcast, as he says, choke yourself, uh, go check out his podcast. I actually, here's a little teaser for episode 47. My next interview is with Mike Ritland, and we talk everything from special operations canine to canine training, nutrition, and so forth. So that's going to be a really fun episode that comes out next. Uh, so stay tuned for that one. So, well, what's been going on here in fabulous Las Vegas? I don't even know much myself because I've been traveling so much, but uh, I just got back from a couple trips. I was in Sacramento first. I was up there at the California Highway Patrol Academy doing a trainer's course for the different trainers they have throughout the state of California. They all got together. They had two weeks with Mike Ellis doing obedience and bite work and problem-solving behavioral things. And then they had two weeks with me doing what I call my selection to detection canine trainers program. And we did things from selection testing, then cognition testing, and then after the cognition testing, taking that information we learned from that and applying it to how we do our step-by-step detection imprintation uh, model. And we do things like delayed conditioning, condition reinforcer. I teach all these things in a step-by-step process. And then like they got to see was it in six days they had dogs on odor. Even with distracting and proofing odor present, they were able to do lineups. Very quickly, the dogs knew what they were looking for, knew how to alert or indicate to the handler that they had found what they were looking for. So that was a really fun course. I've been emailed recently about this. So here's the word I'll pass on to everybody. If you would like me to come out to your area to do the canine trainers course, the selection to detection trainers course, you just need to have five people or more, and then I can come to you and do this course for two weeks. If you need more information on this and the pricing and so forth, just shoot me an email, Cameron at FordK9.com, and I will provide you all the information you need. And if we can get that many people together, I will happily come to you, bring the trailer, all my stuff, and put you guys through the exact same class I did for the Highway Patrol. So um, those that are interested, just shoot me an email. And then last night, I literally just got back from being in Ohio with Robin Ford, who's not related. There, Ironically, I was born in Michigan. I was in Ohio. Their last name's Ford, so you'd figure the odds we would be related, but turns out we're not. But in any case, well, we can't say for sure we're not, but we don't think we are. In any case, I did the canine cognition testing seminar there, had a lot of fun. A lot of the students that went through that got to learn about their dogs, in some cases confirming what they knew, some cases being surprised by what they knew, in some cases thinking that the cognitive testing was more on them than their dogs. But um, yeah, we had a lot of fun doing that. And of course, when I do those cognition seminars, we cover things about detection and, and the information we learn from these cognitive tests, how they help us create a plan for training. Just so, just like I did with California Highway Patrol, I was able to discuss with everybody who does nose work, which a majority of them were here at uh, in the Ohio area with Robin. I was able to discuss the results of the tests and let them know, 
hey, here's are some things that you can think of or you should probably do in training to be more efficient about how you are educating and training your dog to understand odor and, and some things you can do to prevent some issues. So a lot of fun was had with the canine cognition testing seminar. There's going to be actually quite a few more. I go in June to Missouri to the Purina Farms. I uh, link up with Sarah Bruski over there. And then in July, I'm in Virginia at the Ridgeline Canine Facility there. I then bounce to uh, Dallas on July 23rd, 25th, another canine cognition seminar. I believe all of these are all sold out. There's probably another one. There's numerous seminars in between there, the detection seminars and so forth. My schedule is pretty well booked till about the end of the year. If you are interested in a seminar, whether it be canine cognition or the odor pays seminar, shoot me an email. I'll let you know what's available. We are starting to fill up into the beginning now of 2022, but I do what I can to kind of fill in the gaps if there's availability where I can come to your area and do a seminar. And on top of that, a glutton for punishment because I'm starting to create a couple new seminar topics. And one of the fun ones I had and I kind of teased a little bit in Ohio was my new seminar called The Handler Trap. And what that one is, is where I focus on training you and dealing with all the issues you have because as all of us will pretty much freely admit, the dogs are pretty good. It's us. That's the problem. So I figured we needed to have a seminar where I do all the education and training focus on you, the handler. And we have various, I call them games, but it's training series where I put you through various things so that way we can work on whatever your typical issue is with your dog. A lot of times it's a trust issue. A lot of times it's reading my dog's indication. Uh, a lot of times it's my overtly cueing, but not thinking I'm cueing my dog. So stay tuned for my postings on the Handler Trap seminar with description and so forth. So look out for that. We also have, I'm trying to build, as you guys have seen, I'm doing a lot of videos with these puppies that I'm raising and I want to share the information on puppy raising. and various different steps that we take to build on skills in these pups to become detection dogs in the future, whether it be the professional detection dog or a nose work dog or a conservation dog. We just need to keep sharing information on how to take a good selected puppy and then go into good quality foundational steps that help us have a potentially great detection dog at the end. So I'm doing a lot of filming coming up, and as you guys are seeing, I'm sharing some of those uh, videos that I'm posting online. But coming in 2022, there's going to be a bunch of online courses that I'm going to offer. So there'll be puppy selection, then puppy raising, imprinting to odor, to other classes. There's a whole long list of them, and I'll post those all online. But you know, I realized a lot of people obviously can't travel and with COVID that kind of instigated a lot of people to stay at home and, and have classes. So not just my webinars that I've had with my guest instructors, but we will have full-blown Ford K9 online classes. There will even be, if you're looking for a career in detection, 
We will have classes that will help you get prepared for that. If you are wanting to come to our immersive trainer courses, there'll be actually online prerequisite classes, which you will take before you get here. And what that allows us to do is have more time working with dogs practically than me losing a couple days doing classroom material. So to kind of streamline our time when people come to courses here at Ford Canine, there'll be a whole new kind of like online university where you can take courses and some courses will be mandatory to take before you come out here or before I come out to you if it's one of the ones I come out to you at. So stay tuned for that. That's coming in a few months, but I'll be teasing those and sharing the videos from those as we as we build those out. So I wanted to do our typical pre-episode topic that kind of comes from social media, from our course, our Canines Talking Sense discussion group on Facebook. Recently, there's been various topics brought up, but I wanted to bring up the one about you know, to pay or not to pay on a blank search. A lot of different feelings and opinions on what we should do when the dog doesn't indicate when there's no odor present. So if you were to search a room or car and the dog correctly shows you there's nothing there, do you or do you not reinforce that correct behavior? Various Arguments are played on both sides. One is, well, if you pay the dog for not doing anything, the dog will keep doing nothing. Why would it want to show you something when they know they can get reinforcement for showing you nothing? The other one is, it helps reduce the potential for false alerts because the dog knows there is a way to be right even when no odor is present. So, If there's no odor present or they've had a longer search, they're less likely to potentially pick something strong or salient in the room and say, well, how about this? If you employ a method of showing reinforcement for correct behavior on nothing there or no alert. Here's my opinion. This is what I do. I do a form of reinforcement. And this is a low-level reinforcement. And many of you guys kind of do this. You may or may not know. But if my dog searches an area that's blank, contains no odor, and correctly does not alert or indicate, I praise my dog more than usual. So when we kind of leave that search area, I interact with my dog a lot. I praise my dog a lot. I let them know that there is a they were right. Now, I'm not throwing a ball on the ground or tossing food. You know, for me, since most of my dogs are all toy, I could use food in the hierarchy of reward because it's a lower level one for my dogs. But the way I want people to look at it is there's various ways to address this. It also depends on your dog. It also depends on what your work criteria is. So here's the thing. There is no right or wrong answer to that question. I would say be open-minded, do what's best for your dog, communicate it effectively so that way the dog knows if you are going to give some type of reinforcement for a blank that they at least understand why that reinforcement happened. Because that's a common typical argument point is, 
Well, if you just start rewarding the dog, what did they get rewarded for? How did they know it was for a blank search? So you need to set up, and I start off in the very beginning. So let's just say when I imprint the dogs or I associate the dogs to odor, I have my items present and the target item, let's say it's, let's say it's pipes, the elbow pipes, typical elbow pipes that people see. I will have the target pipe removed and the only thing there are blank ones or ones with distracting or proofing odor and blank. If my dog correctly goes down those and says there's nothing here, I will reward that. I will say, good boy, we say we play, do whatever. But they have to demonstrate that they're clearly showing there's nothing here. And what that helps me do as a handler is I can see better what the behavior looks like when nothing's present. And sometimes I'll push. I'll just keep standing there looking, you know, because I want to push it to a point when they understand that I might not leave for a little bit. I'm going to keep kind of hanging out here waiting for something to happen. But if a dog is persistent, like, hey, nothing's here, and they kind of want to leave the area, they're like, I want to go other places because there's there's nothing here I'm looking for. So in the beginning, by creating a less variable or a low variable environment, there's nothing present, I can quickly signify to the dog that that behavior of no indication was right, and I build out from there. So then it goes from multiple items to maybe a room, one vehicle, so on and so forth. But I let my dog know through that training building block process that in the absence of odor and no alert is still something that has a level of reinforcement. It's not going to be the highest level of reinforcement. It's not going to be jackpot, or, but it's going to be reinforceable, that they understand that, that they did correct versus not acknowledging no odor at all. You know, that's, again, this is my opinion. You can say, Cameron, you're a freaking idiot. Your dogs are going to do that. Your dogs are going to, you know, walk away from whatever you you want to say. I'm cool with it because I test myself frequently. I get tested by other people because of the position I'm in and I have good results. And I do what I do because I see success based on dogs I select and how I train just like anybody else does. I'm not going to say that they're wrong because they don't do that because I've also done did many years of not acknowledging my dog at all when there was uh, no odor present. So I've been on both sides of this fence for me and what I do now and how my methodology that I choose to use for teaching and training dogs odor, this block works well for informing or communicating to my dog that the lack of odor and the lack of response due to no odor being present is still something that receives reinforcement. So I just have conditions and rules and I build through that. So just something fun I want you guys to kind of consider and maybe debate amongst yourselves. If you want to email me and tell me how crazy I am or you like the idea or you want more information about this stuff, like I said, my email is Cameron at FordK9.com. So with all that said, let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. This episode, I am sitting down with somebody who I have known through the industry for a little while. We've run a lot of the same circles. He has a very diverse canine background, also both as handler, trainer, and fellow researcher. I'll let you go even further with it. Paul Bunker, welcome to the show. Hey, Cameron and listeners, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to sit down and talk with you today. 
Absolutely. So for those who don't know uh, about you or your background, give us a little insight to, you know, how you got to where you're at today. Yeah, sure. So I assume like a lot of people, you know, I, I grew up with dogs and my father kept kind of a pack continually. Either we lived on a farm or in a cottage, but we do obedience and he would hunt with dogs and Border Collie, Labrador, Pointers, you know, and that's the way I was raised. And because we lived out on a farm or in the country when I did go and stay with him, I didn't have any friends, so I spent a lot of time with the dogs, just walking them or training them. Or, In fact, my first job was sitting on the gate of the obedience uh, field, and when our pointer bolted to try and get out the field, I would stop her, capture to give it back to my dad and, you know, and I'd get 10 pence or, you know, it would be like a dime or something every time I caught her. So that was my first paid job. But as I then uh, graduated school, which I really didn't enjoy academics or school, I knew I wanted to do something with dogs. And the only avenue in the UK at the time really was the police or military. And I actually did apply to the police, but I was too short. <laughs> I'm five eight. And at the time, you had to be 5'10". Huh. And uh, I got through initial selection, and then they said, too short, you can't come in, and you're not going to grow anymore. <sighs> so then it was the military, and I did join the military as a dog trainer in the Royal Army Veterinary Corps. That was the trade I selected. And I ended up serving 22 years. And then the last couple of years was training members of the United States Army Corps of Engineers in landmine detection, on a project that I was running at the time. And I ended up coming over to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri, establishing that program. And when I retired, because in the British military, you retire at 22 years, or you can go on extended service and maybe become an officer or something. And really at that time I was ready. So I retired and was offered a position at Fort Leonard Wood for one year, running the specialized search dog, which is the off-leash detection dog project them i want to say that no there was a, a navy on it so it would have been for the army but there was navy a navy representative on it i did that for a year then was i actually returned to the uk at the christmas that would have been 2005 christmas and received a phone call when i come back and assist with a transfer at lackland for six weeks i went back six, 12, 36 weeks, you know, and just ended up staying at Blackland <laughs> on the SSD program for six or seven years. And I went up to North Carolina mm -hmm. to run the Army's combat tracking dog course for one year. And on completion, that was asked to join the company up there as a program manager on the United States Marine Corps um, IDD program, the off-leash detection program for the Marine Infantry. Mm-hmm. Ended up the program manager of the Office of Naval Research, actually, was which was really my um, deep delve into research and, and working with universities and working with scientists and looking at hydration, nutrition, cognition. Evan McLean, uh, Dr. Evan McLean mm -hmm. and um, Dr. Brian Hare mm -hmm. were part of that. And there is a brief mention in The Genius of Dogs, as well as some other applications for detection canines all the research was non-invasive so i will say that you know it was all training detection how can we make dogs better 
Then I became director of uh, the company, which was more a resource-based, you know, looking after people, looking after budgets, and that side of the business. Um, I took a year sabbatical, and oh, you call me a sabbatical. I actually, <laughs> you know, from work, but I, I took a year off. Hiked the Appalachian Trail with my son, came back, maybe did a year, and then I had an opportunity to go up to Canada for four or so months running an oil detection dog project oh. after a spill. And it was coming back from that, I realized, you know, it's the dogs that I love, it's handling, it's being out in the field, it's solving problems, it's doing everything that I'd missed by being sat at a desk. So resigned and started my own company three and a half years ago, showering canine, and then moved back down to San Antonio, Texas, and here I am now. Yeah, and you've got to do one of the fun things that you and I, we actually now share a couple different connections in the academic world. With, like you said, mentioning doing that initial canine cognition research with Dr. Hare and Dr. McLean. And because you guys were that first step with ONR looking at the working dogs, because prior to that, they'd always been looking at the canine companions for independence and things of that nature. And what I found funny was I got to go watch a lot of those videos back there from uh, when they did the research in North Carolina with that company you're with. And uh, their researchers were not used to that level of drive and motivation in dogs. <laughs> so, Yeah, I remember once, well, not once because it happened a lot of times, but they did ha- have a test where there's a clear plastic yeah barrel with ends and you know the expectation is the dog sees the tree the hand go inside the open ends of the tube see the tree drop and then they're released and they can go forward put the head in and and work it out but our dogs would just head barrel barge straight into the plastic and then just keep head buttoning to try and get to the the source which is what we want as an off-leash detection dog you know that desire that I know the word drive isn't a good word at the minute within the community, but, you know, that independence and absolute fight to get to what they want is absolutely what we want. And that actually was demonstrated in the results, I believe. And from what I've seen, you know, Dr. Emma McLean in his presentations afterwards, it clearly demonstrated how the dogs for independence from the CCI, their dogs, how different they are because of what they're required to do in comparison to off-loose detection dogs, which is very much that independent, five-five problem-solving dog that we needed. Yeah, and it was funny because I came into it then raising it up another bar by having these dual-purpose dogs from the Navy SEAL program do these tests. And the first thing, you that exact test you brought up was one I was like, I know you guys call this unsolvable, but they will solve this very quickly by biting and crushing this thing and getting their item out. Oh, no, it should be fine. So, of course, I filmed it, and it lasted less than 15 seconds. And I said, solved. <laughs> and, then, and I, and I, what I showed them and I said, we have other ways we look at something very similar to this, but it was just funny how, you, you know, what they, their evolution in the type of dogs they dealt with for these tests and then how people like yourself and myself that we go to them and say, okay, well, we're going to have to make a modification because these type of dogs will do this differently than what they were used to. So it was, uh, it was really fun to see that, you know, 
watching what they did with you guys and then taking those lessons learned and I got to apply them for the project I was on. So that was a lot of fun to just, again, we know we had never talked to each other, didn't know, I knew about you doing it with them, but you didn't know at that time I was doing it later on with the uh, SEAL Team Dogs until later on when it came out. But it was it's a cool little parallel, as well as the one with Nathan Hall and, and Mallory, Dr. Hall and Mallory, Deshant. So I'll let you go ahead and, and talk about, because that came out fairly recently, but for those who don't know about the research that you did there at Texas Tech, talk about what the objective was and what was learned and the information that came from that. Yeah, and you know the story of this research goes back a while, several years. So in the UK military, we used to train the dogs on like 50 grams or 75 grams, and I'm sorry, I don't know what that is in ounces, but it's small amounts of explosive. And that was our training kit. You know, the training kit would fit in a very small box, and, and that's what you train the dogs on. So when I came over to the United States, the restrictions within the military here was that the same kit was made with full-size products you would buy from a a factory or producer or manufacturer or whatever. So one and a quarter pound blocks of C4, for instance, and nothing less. So we were using that in training. And what I noticed when we went to the operational phase in Yuma in Arizona was that, it, and there, there was not so much restriction because it was a range and you had EOD to place, or a, yeah, EOD to place out your training aids. We could bury them, we can make them a lot smaller and things. And I've noticed dogs struggled on small amounts. I kind of formed this hypothesis that, well, if you always train on one and a quarter, that's what the dog's looking for. And again, you know, there's several theories out there I've seen about the size of the target influences the molecules that are available in type, if you like. But I was thinking that there's potential that we're actually calibrating the nose to a quantity and the dog is actually looking for an amount of Mm -hmm. molecules. So that was my theory. And when I moved into the oil dog project, like I said, we was up in Canada for four months. Four dogs had, through the course of of the deployment over three years, we had over 10,000 fines. And these ranged from literally a stain on a reed that the dog got from meat, meat, feet and feet and feet away, like a minimum 30 feet, and I couldn't believe what I was watching. It would air up, run to source, respond on um, reeds at the side of a river. We went, and there was literally a stain of oil on it. And and then they were finding huge mats of oil that were subsurface buried or under the river, actually, in the sediment. And, you know, they're finding all these incredible ranges of oil. However, the problem is, in real life, you don't clean stains on reeds you don't clean you know my new traces of oil bacteria and natural weather will actually do that for you so the dogs were responding and the the environmentalists we were with the scientists would be well we'll pick it up and take it but you know that's a a minute amount we wouldn't normally look at that and although it wasn't a criticism because it did supply a lot of data and information about the way oil travels down the river is and infected by the environment etc it was something we had to look at because on a beach, there's a lot of natural oil. And I'm sure, you know, people have been on a beach at the end of the day with their kids or something and they notice a black substance on their feet. That's oil. And it naturally 
occurs on beaches, either it's washed up from natural seeps offshore, especially on the west coast, California, and we get it a lot in the Gulf of Mexico down in Texas, a lot. So, or it's off ships, you know, they either actually dump it or it leaks or, you know, there's some, you know, refuel that just gets spilled and it ends it up on the beach. So, in a spill response on a beach, again, they don't want to dig deep holes on the beach looking for this little tar ball of oil because it naturally the weather will deal with it anyway. What they need is the big mats of oil that are buried that they can't see. So I've kind of been saying for some time when this was discussed with environmentalists, well, I think you can calibrate a dog. I think you can calibrate a dog, but there's no science. Nowhere could I actually prove this to people and say you could calibrate a dog. And Fortunately, we received some funding from American Petroleum Institute, which looks at this type of research. And I discussed it with Nathan. The concept obviously existed, and he, he agreed that, you know, potentially that could happen, that you can calibrate a dog to certain levels of odor. And we moved forward with the project. Uh, Mallory obviously did all the work. I don't want to take any work away from her at all. Mallory actually did all the work with obviously Nathan in support at Texas Tech. And then I provided some of the background, you know, and, and some of the knowledge in the work. There was a little about the training and stuff, but, you know, all due to Mallory, she completed the research. But basically, the results were that you can calibrate a dog either inadvertently or reinforce calibration to certain amounts. So it meant that if you wanted to train on a certain amount, the dog would naturally discriminate anything tenfold or above or below that amount. And then you could reinforce that to ignore anything tenfold below the amount you've actually imprinted on. Mm -hmm. Now, there is some natural recovery in that in the field. Potentially, you know, a dog will try it out and see if I get a reward for something lower. But if you reinforce the fact that ignore that amount, but indicate on that amount, and reinforce indicating on the correct amount, you have two defined behaviors that are reinforceable, and the dog will learn, okay, if I don't respond on this, I get a reward in training. And then if I do respond on this in the field and in training, I get a reward, I'll calibrate. But what that also did demonstrate is potentially, which is another thing that I believe, that if your cross-contamination protocols are not effective, if you don't wear gloves, if you don't worry about barriers, if you allow your target to soak into the environment, every time you work your dog and is exposed to those levels of cross-contamination, it will either naturally learn to ignore them because they're non-reinforced, they're non-rewardable, or alternatively, if it does respond, it's corrected, actually it will learn to ignore them. And what you're doing is desensitizing the dog's nose to certain levels of your target just either inadvertently through correcting your dog for what you believe is a false response but actually it's residual mm -hmm. or teaching the dog that actually that level is non-reforcing so just ignore it and move on to the actual lump of whatever you you know has been put out for training so we did answer a couple of questions for me in the oil obviously line it, it did answer that important question that yes, we could calibrate a dog, but also potentially in any dog training, it demonstrates how cross-contamination is an important consideration if you want the dog to find 
smaller amounts of your target. You you brought up a couple of things there that I'll kind of hit with. So, you know, for those that uh, haven't read it, basically if you took, say, the program trained on 10 grams of a substance, you know, and and many canine handlers have these predetermined weights in their odor kit depending on whatever substance they're training on. So for the sake of the math aspect, it will make it pretty easy. 10 grams. So if I'm training on 10 grams, the dogs will hit from anywhere from basically one gram up to 100 grams pretty easily with that spontaneous generalizing to that levels, no matter what that is. But once you go above 100 or below one gram, dogs became very significantly less efficient or, or, or accurate when it was outside of the threshold levels. And like you brought up, you know, sometimes we've done this numerous times, as I say, without even knowing we've done this because of those things that you brought up with, uh, let's say, holding a training aid, you know, not gloved or what have you, or or maybe placing it out for a second and then moving it to another spot, but thinking to ourselves, well, there's nothing there because of whatever that reason is. And then also the dog does show some kind of interest or what have you, and we ignore it or don't reinforce it because we know the answer because we put the odor over here or the substance over here. So then the dog goes, okay, well, I ignore these levels of odor. So with that said... One of the first things I wanted to ask about, because this, as we both know, is it's common in the industry to talk about residual odor. So because a lot of times that isn't measured, how do we equate the difference between a very small amount of substance placed out that we know is probably going to be off-gassing, and I say we know is we don't really know, but by putting out a very small amount of substance with very low surface area, we would make the hypothesis that this is not off-gassing at a very high rate. The difference between that and then a residual level of odor out, both can be very basically the same for at least a period of time until the one burns off and the other one obviously stays there if it's if the substance is there. You know, as dog handlers, how do we deal with that? What's what's something that we can do to address this issue that we self-inflict? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. And throughout the years, you know, I've encountered programs where they say we don't want the dog to respond on residual and others where they're quite happy if the dog responds on residual. And I think that's the first question that anyone has to answer is, but what do I desire my dog to tell me is there or not there? Because if you're quite comfortable, or actually it's an advantage to respond on residuals, such as, um, let's say, an explosive detection dog, where mm-hmm. you can actually then test the location of a response. And technology nowadays, you know, can find minute traces on a surface and confirm that, yes, there was something there, then potentially we're going to want that to happen. But there may be cases where someone says, I don't want my dog to respond on residual. I only want it to respond on source. And I I agree with you. You know, at some point, the residual is going to have a very similar odor profile to target, particularly if your targets potentially are well hidden. Yep. So if you then are expecting the dog to understand the difference between residual and um, target, You've really got to, you know, I collaborate. And I collaborate with scientists because I'm not, you know, that intelligent that I can understand chemistry or anything like that. Um, So 
you know, I, I would actually go to a scientist that understands chemistry and actually ask him, um, but is there a difference between the molecular makeup of the plume from a residual and a target? And if there isn't, then I've got to look at, and I would potentially look at quantity. And this research we just did demonstrates that if the source is at a quantity level where I can distinguish and reinforce, ignore residual and only find source, then that's going to solve that problem. And obviously the research demonstrated that's a capability. But I think really each individual person has to ask first, what do I want the dog to do? And then once I've got that answer, I can then address how I want it to happen. And I'm not sure that I ever actually don't want a dog to respond on residual. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's the cal calibration to amount. But, you know, particularly in the explosives world, I do. You know, I want the dog to say there was something here. Yeah. Then the the rest of the team can investigate further and say, yeah, we've got a trace amount in our technology that says you are correct. There was something here. Oh, yeah. And the, the drug dog handlers have, I think, a hard time with this as well because, you know, when the drug dog gives its alert, then they want to be able to back that up with, with, with finding something. But with that said, this gives a handler the ability to articulate, yes, my dog may give me an alert or indicate and I don't find something, but does it mean that something wasn't there? You know, and if they are training on low amounts and they're documenting that they train on low amounts, we, the research shows it's very probable the dog will indicate on those trace amounts of odor that are left behind, even when the substance has been removed or recently ingested or what have you. So... Because I keep trying, they a lot of times they want to work in that black and white world. There's something there, there's something not there, or at least not so much the handlers always, but the legal system typically likes to bring in, you know, stats and, you know, your dog is giving you alert this many times on, you know, based on your records and on your deployment sheets and stuff like that. And only this many times you actually found a substance. Well, th this research and things like that, especially again through their documentation and training, showing that they've trained on a low amount of, of odor shows that they can actually, the dog has a probability to give you that alert indication and say, and you may not still find a substance, but the dog wasn't wrong. And, 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 and to your point too is what happens is you now add the handlers who don't give a reward or reinforcement on a real search because they're, of any different reasons, most commonly Handlers always want to say, well, I don't know what's there, so I don't want to reward my dog. So, or I don't want to inadvertently reward my dog for something that wasn't targeted. Or what, like, as we both know, we've heard the different arguments for that. It, it, in this case, if that dog is giving that uh, alert and saying, hey, there's something here, now the dog's not getting any reinforcement for it. So now we've created this misunderstanding or, or bad communication to the dog as to what they're doing, you know, as to what gets reinforcement. So just adds further confusion and, and creates that clearer definition between training and reality too. Yeah. You know, and that's something that we see a lot that in training, particularly like, you know, if troops are deployed overseas where it's very restricted, if you think about Afghanistan, Iraq, and, the, you know, back in my day, Bosnia and Kosovo mm -hmm. and Northern Ireland things, when you think about these environments, you can't train in the live environment mm -hmm. and you can only train on base and the dogs become very context aware mm -hmm. and they know, okay, if I leave the base 
and I give a response, or in case of law enforcement or whatever, you know, I, I, in a vehicle stop, I give a response, I never get rewarded. And they very quickly learn those type of contexts mm-hmm. of how to respond and how to react for rewardable behavior. And if you're continually working a dog on a traffic stop and then never rewarding, that can have detriment to your dog. One, it's going to stress it because, you know, it wants its toy, it wants its reward, it wants reinforced, it wants to affirm what it's found and what it's supposed to do, and then nothing. And I conduct a number of strategies, and I'm not saying any of these are correct, but this is, you know, some of the strategies that I do throughout my training program to actually give me enough confidence that I always reward is things like I do a lot of blanks. Yes. Even in training, even in very early training, I do a lot of blanks. And I'm talking, I might do 50% blanks in a day. So the dog receives 50% runs where there's target and 50% runs where there's no target. However, I also train that giving a non-response or a response for no target is a rewardable behavior. So that if you search something and you come back to me and say, there's nothing here and there's nothing, then you're going to get a reward. And that, again, it gives the dog a choice. Okay, if there's something here and I give a response, I get a a reward. If there's nothing here and I tell him there's nothing here, I get a reward. So there's no stress to actually have to find something to get a reward. It now has a choice. Now, there are some caveats to that. You don't want to give a jackpot reward for saying there's nothing there because potentially, in my <laughs> yes, mind, correct. potentially the dog could learn, okay, I'll say there's nothing here because I know I get my jackpot mm-hmm. saying there's nothing here, even though there is. And so you could develop that. So, you know, you have to apply it correctly, but actually I found that extremely effective. Reduces stress means you don't have to have a bind to actually receive a, a reinforcement, a reward. By doing blanks, I find that false responses, non-productive responses, whatever you want to term them, actually disappear to almost nothing because why does the dog need to give a false? Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Both options are rewardable or reinforceable, and if there's something there, it's just a quicker way to get its reward than if I have to search everything and tell him there's nothing there. So, in fact, you know, the dogs will actually smell the target and give a quick response because they're, okay, I don't have to search the rest of this room or whatever it is. I can get my reward now. So here I am. And there's a chance it's going to be the jackpot because I also use, now I've been told I term it wrong, but it is a variable reward type. Let's call it that. So the dog might get cheese, chicken, commercial treats, tennis ball. And, you know, if you look in my book, I've written about this hierarchy of rewards, uh, tennis ball, Kong, and I have this hierarchy that I use. And in a real-life search, if I'm not convinced 100%, okay, my dog didn't quite give me enough to convince me, you know, it's little tail flick it normally does or something wasn't quite there, but I'm not going to not reward it, I have the option to give a low-value reward. I can just give it praise and say good boy or whatever, and it's still a reward, so I'm not not rewarding my dog. It might not be the reward the dog wants, it might not be the jackpot, but because I've used that system all the way through training, it knows the jackpot is still out there. It knows, okay, this time I just got some praise and a bit of love. I'm going to try harder because I want my jackpot. And I find that using that system as well, even on, you know, out on the ground, 
helps because it's a low value reward. So it doesn't accelerate learning. As we know, one of the principles of accelerated learning is a high value reward. It's not the jackpot. It means the dog's going to work harder, but it's not, again, caused any stress or got it annoyed or whatever you want to call it, putting it in human terms, that it didn't get something, even though there's something there where there's residual or there's actually a hide we can find or whatever it is. Yeah, no, and, and it's funny. The... I'm going to circle back on the research. I'm going to come to exactly what you said here a second. And I wanted to let the listeners who are in the sport world, nose work, also understand that the research about the odor levels is important for you guys as well because so many times things get moved around or what's expected for the handlers. You know, Some people do a setup of with their odors a certain way. Or like you brought up, those essential oils themselves are very volatile but sticky in a sense, for lack of a better term. They get on everything. So if they're not being smart about or careful about handling, they many times they may have inadvertently not given reinforcement for the dog for actually locating the odor, but it wasn't the spot they put it in. But the box they touched, the container they touched that may have had some transfer over to it causes some of these issues that they see. So I wanted to let the listeners that do nose work know that. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find and it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input, uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. 
Go to www.fordk9.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford K9 now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at TacticalDirectionalK9.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com, or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. Now, the part you brought up about the um, varying type of reward system, I live in that town. It's called Las Vegas. And <laughs> we keep people at the uh, slot machines because, like you said, jackpot is out there, but they also get those various levels of dollar amounts. Sometimes it's 10, sometimes 40, sometimes five. And it's that psychological aspect that keeps us doing it. And I had a really good conversation with a friend of mine. He's also a dog handler uh, out in California, but he also runs the Navy Mammal Program. And we had that same discussion at one point talking about giving reinforcement for, you know, not finding anything and that being correct. So the dog understood that, like you said, there wasn't the pressure. They always had to find something because inadvertently through the training that we typically use, the only way to get reinforcements if they find an odor. So in the absence of odor, these dogs just keep working until, or if the handler never leaves that space, the dog basically feels, well, how's this? Does this work? This this thing's stinky too. Or they spontaneously generalize to something else novel in the space that's salient. So 
And what I've seen in the mammal world is exactly what you described. So sometimes it was ice thrown to the dolphins or sea lions. Sometimes it was actually just water. Sometimes the lid of the igloo cooler that they had on the boat. And then there would also be the sardines that would get given to them. And that was their jackpot. And because of that varying type of reward-based system, the mammals worked much better, much longer. And like you said, which is to me, this is a crucial takeaway in what you just described is maybe let's say you are doing something blind or you know there's a better answer, but the dog hasn't quite figured it out. You can still give something of reinforcement. It's not exactly what their high value, but it's there. And that drives them to keep trying or keep pushing and keep working because the jackpot will come. And to have that in the psychological aspect for the animal, even, of course, us as humans, is important. It keeps you wanting to do things versus getting you know, I was like, like a burned out, but just there's no motivation there. So why do you want to keep doing that? You'll extinct those behaviors. So that was really, really a great example. And you brought up your book. So, which is one of the main reasons why I wanted you on here. Tell us about the book and kind of just kind of run through the, um, uh, you know, the overview of what you did and, and why you decided to write the book. Yeah. So, you know, I've been thinking for, several years about writing a book or it was more people asking me and my business model is me as a sole proprietor if I need to I collaborate but my intent was never to you know have people as employees or offer services or anything that nature and if you notice on my website or anything like that a lot of my work is research project driven where I'll do a, a project and then move on don't offer courses or, you know, workshops at the facility that I lease or seminars or anything. So, you know, just because that's, I enjoy being in the research field and actually or being out working a dog myself, it hasn't given me the opportunity to develop courses, et cetera, to train other people. But, you know, people keep asking, well, how do you do it? What do you do? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a lot of people, and, I, you know, I do mean a lot of people contact me and say, well, you should write a book because I'd like to know what you do or or something like that. So that was one reason. And, you know, I held off, held off. I actually went out to Columbia two years ago for a month. And one of the reasons I went there was to write a book. And I got there and I loved the country so much that I just traveled and enjoyed myself, (laughs) you know, and never wrote a word on the book. And it just happened that there was a course in January write your dog training book in 30 days or something anyway there was a daily course with a motivation and a lesson and everything and it was part of canine principles which is an online training academy that i actually tutor for and the owner i've known her for years and years she was in the military with me she said well why don't you do she's always known her you know the desire i wanted to write a book but never had she said why don't you join this course 30 days and see how it goes so i did and actually, at the end of 30 days, I had this book. Wow. And and that's basically how it came to be printed, you know, in March. I sent it off to two proofreaders. I had to get it translated into American, of course. So <laughs> it went to two American proofreaders and went through the whole process of, of preparation. So that's kind of how it came about. Mm-hmm. 
what I wanted to do was educate, you know, and it was to provide a, an overview of how I train. Now, I try and emphasize in the book, you know, and I always try and emphasize the people that I work with or when I give presentations or seminars or whatever that, you know, my way isn't the only way. And I'm not saying my way is necessarily even the best way. I think it comes down to a lot of factors. The individual that's actually training, your own methodology, the type of character you are. So how you can apply yourself in communicating with your dog, but also the individual dog in front mm-hmm. of you. You know, the dog will dictate the techniques you use, the motivators you require, the reinforcers, the approach that you take to training the dog is the dog. So while the book is a step-by-step progression throughout a system that works, as I try and explain in the book, you know, if you have to, just deviate to what works for you and your dog. Don't feel this is the law. Don't feel that, well, he's saying this is the only way because it's not. But the idea was to give a guide. And it is detailed step-by-step through 15 days of teaching a response and then into teaching actually a basic search technique and a response on a target of some sort. But then also within that, it goes into handling the storage of a of training aids, which we've obviously spoken about, and the importance of that. Reward selection, which we've spoken about, and the importance of that. Even the types of gloves to wear, record keeping. You know, there's an overview that the idea was that anyone could pick up the book, and really a beginner that knows nothing, and after 15 days have sufficient information to produce a basic standard of dog that will give a response on a target odor in a three three part three jar whatever you want to use line mm-hmm. and it was just a method to educate people and another reason i went down this course was that you know dogs are becoming more and more popular outside of the law enforcement and military yes and integrated into other parts of society and i don't just mean like ptsd and service dogs but the conservation community and the environmental search community, which I'm involved with, is just expanding incredibly, you know, and I did see somewhere a report the other day that there's actually more dogs employed in detection that's not law enforcement and military than in the law enforcement and military nowadays, just because the vast array of uses of dogs now people are starting to see, but also it's available. You know, someone could own a dog and actually train it to support them in their job, like ecologists and environmentalists, and take them to work and help do their jobs. There's a lot of people out there that are doing this. They're not from a formal dog training background. Uh, They have a great dog. They're keen and motivated, but they have no idea where to start or where do I go. And that was the reason for the step-by-step. But also, I have encountered people that, now, they tell me, well, I train my dog, but I have this issue. And when you explain to them, well, you're contaminating your areas because you don't wear gloves, mm-hmm. or why are you storing your training aids with your distractors, or what, you know, some of the things that us that have been brought through a more formal training process all understand, of course, they don't have the resources available to realize any of this and the importance of it. So, again, it, it was partly to do that just to educate because the community is growing. And it's growing regardless of what we would like to do or we want to do or professionalize it or anything. Um, It's going to keep growing. And I wanted this book to be a resource to support that growth. 
so that people can actually understand some of the principles that we know within the community exist, you know, and, and just make dogs and dog training and dog employment better because the better they are, the better our community is, you know, as we, as we grow with them. So, yeah, I was going to say, look, kind of long drawn out, but, you know, there was, there was a number of little factors and reasons that all came together as to why uh, I really wanted to put this book out there and help and educate and, and allow those people that wanted to do this to have a go. You know, at the end of the day, if they do this at home and the dog doesn't work, at least they know it. And they've spent $50 on three mason jars, a con, and some treats. You know, the system I use is a very simple system that it doesn't require a lot of technology. It doesn't require any technology or devices, but it, at least it gives you an opportunity to assess your own dog or you and just say, this isn't for me, it's not for my dog, or, wow, <laughs> this is great, and on to the next steps. Yeah, no, and, and like you said, you, you put a system there that follows that KISS rule, keep it simple, stupid kind of thing. You know, it doesn't require a lot of things because th- at this point you're just starting off and, you know, leading into one of the things that you said a second ago was you have to train the dog in front of you. And that was one of the biggest lessons I learned through the cognition research that I got to do with Evan and Brian. And that has guided me today. And as you know, I go around and I do these cognition seminars where I, my whole goal is like you brought it with the growth of the industry and how many people are getting more into detection. I wanted to share with them that, see, this dog, even though you guys are in the same group or maybe train the same type of detection, that that dog is different than that dog. And you have to be willing to be flexible in that training method because of that dog. And, you know, because of, like you said, with growth, but also with growth, we still deal with things from the past and training methods or ideas that have been around a while and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just certain things work better for certain dogs than other ones. And for example, if I have a dog who is a memory dog, very strong in memory, you know, every now and then I'll catch flack online because people are like, oh my gosh, all the gadgets and all the things that you have. And part of that is because I, for dogs I train, I need to change context every couple of days. So that way the only thing that's the same is the odor they're looking for no matter what it's in. And the various types of containers or um, contraptions, for lack of a better term, whatever it's in, the odor is the same, but those devices also sometimes have a use that enables or makes better or more efficient the communication process for the dog to understand, yep, target's here, not here. Or these other things hold distracting or proofing items. This one, okay, yep, there's target right there. So, but I love that because of how you wrote the book, because of the field growing so extensively in in, um, detection that anybody can do this, there's very little investment needed to get started. Because depending on who you go to, where you go to, people may think, oh my gosh, in order to do detection, I need this, 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 you know, or I need to go buy $800 boxes that pop a toy out of them or what have you. But the, the, it's it's not that complicated. You can do a lot. You can learn so much from your dog by following a, a simple process and then building out from there because once you know your dog, you can develop even further. 
And like you said, with just how much growth there is, especially in the conservation and ecology part of detection dogs, I mean, it's no longer just the Malinois, German Shepherd, Labrador, Pointer kind of thing. It's the breeds now can be a lot of different types of dogs. And with that becomes all these different types of traits that are genetically there that you're dealing with that the trainers who developed the, I would say more the standard or popular models didn't ever deal with. So I can I kind of let you expand from that a little bit of how important that is to, to understand and, and to work around. Yeah. So two sides, I think said work in general, as in competitions and, and even as a hobby type thing is growing massively. And I know in, UK and Europe is huge and I, I, it's growing here in the United States as well. And I think that's great for dogs in general because, you know, when I grew up, we had dogs and like I said, I was raised with dogs. And, you know, back in the day, and I know I'm swinging the lamp and old stories, but back in the day, you did go out and play with your gang and you had sticks and we'd go and, you know, you played in the woods and the dog came along and it, it was very much part of society and it was grown up with you. And then as time has moved on, you know, both parents side working, people now have technology to keep them inside the house and the dog goes for a walk and that's it. And with the set work and the competitions and everything, I think it's fantastic because it means people are starting to get involved with their dogs again and dogs are starting to get some enrichment and they're getting to take part in our, you know, everyday lives more because this is available. So again, this book could be picked up by someone that just wants to do something with their pet dog at home, have fun, find their keys when I lose them or, you know, whatever it, it is. So I think it's good that these types of uses of dogs, if you like, in that is competition and fun and sport and things are actually starting to, to happen and grow. But also, as you said, you know, the, the typical working dogs that we'd expect in law enforcement, military, and Malinois, and I mean, high drive Malinois, I wouldn't necessarily want in a normal home environment because they need more than that because that's what they've been bred for. But these types mm-hmm. of high drive working dogs as well, you know, they're in limited supply as we know, and they're expensive as we know. They have to be imported from Europe or bought from a breeder here, you know, and the law enforcement, military, federal agencies are snapping them up. So agencies or, or organizations like Road Detection Dogs, Working Dogs for Conservation, these big conservation organizations actually use rescues. Mm-hmm. And Nathan Hall, you know, a lot of his work is with rescues. So there has to be a system in place where these rescue dogs that are from very different backgrounds, very different breeds, some are not toy-driven, but they like treats, etc. have a way to actually be trained and become part of this working environment, and they're perfectly capable of doing this. I mean, if you go online and look for road detection dogs, they have these bounder teams that are all strays, all rescues of all different breeds, and they're doing amazing work in conservation. And equally, you know, people volunteer with their dogs, I have a volunteer program down here in Texas supporting a conservation program, which is all volunteers, and they bring their own dogs from home, and we train them. So, as you said, you know, these dogs present themselves, and they're all individual, they're all very different, they all have different ways of working, and the ways that you can tap into them to produce a working dog, and you can't use 
one-size-fits-all type dog training. So the actual growth in use of dogs outside of military and law enforcement means that the breeds being used has also grown. And it's gone way outside of the hunt breeds or um, uh, guarding type breeds, the fluffy ears, pointy ear type breeds into crossbreeds and lots mm-hmm. of border collies and kelpies and all these types of breeds as well, which, you know, I had a kelpie explosive detection dog when I worked in Australia for a while and they are very different. But then I've just trained seven pointers and they are hugely different from a Labrador, yeah. you know. So, yeah. again, you, you have to be able to train the dog in front of you, assess the dog, see what works, and then adopt those techniques. But what I was hoping, obviously, with the book, it gave a baseline to enable you to select the best rewards, the best system, the best target, the best markers, you know, everything that suits the best, but gave enough guidance that you could get through this and either have fun because you're doing it for fun or actually produce a dog ready to move on to the next stage if you were moving into a more formal process. Yeah, no, and, and I love you've brought up the the use of markers because you know that is something that's also growing quite a bit within the industry. And there's been you know various fears, or I you know there's the the research that gets brought up from time to time. It's regurgitated, and of course, I have to remind many: if you read the whole research, it tells you that the body language became the you know marker, but it was a physical one versus the two choices of audible before, which was clicker or, or uh, verbal. How have you seen it and how have you seen the growth of markers? Like I said, me and you come have a little bit more of the academic side where this was more popular, especially in medical initially, and then it grew out from there. But then, of course, as I worked with a mammal world, and then we implemented the use of markers within the uh, SEAL team community with the dogs for different reasons, but the communication was the, was the main reason. I guess talk about a little bit about that because I know that's a, uh, I want to call it a newer topic, but it's newer in certain circles in the detection dog world. Yeah, so actually my introduction to marker, and by marker I'm talking about clickers, specifically for me. You know, I talk, when I say marker, I use a clicker and it's just that. But it goes back over two decades. A friend of mine who's actually mentioned in my book, and I, I briefly talk about this, but not the full story. And I won't go into the full story now because it's quite long, but basically showed me a video. And, you know, for those younger listeners, video was a large plastic box you put into a machine <laughs> and it it played film on a TV screen. But he showed me a video from America, a clicker class. And I was thinking, what's this circus trick? You know, I was in the military at the time and trained protection dogs. And honestly, at that point, I was actually... Um, only training with the way we've been taught, which is jerk on the lead. We didn't use check chains or anything. We only had flat leather collars, but it was all jerk on the lead. And we'd put explosives in a tube and throw it down the road. And that's how we taught the dog to find the explosives by playing with it. You know, and, and things that nowadays you're looking at it, nah, you're lying. I'm telling the <laughs> truth. That's what we used to do. You know, I would handle nitroglycerine with bare hands because we didn't wear gloves. But anyway, you know, he showed me this video. And it was my first introduction. I was like, that's a circus trick, and what use is that? And I dismissed it. And then about two years later, I started the Mind Detection Dog program for the Balkans. And we had to have the dogs actually search a path. It was the only time I'll say clear. The dogs had to clear a path 
50 metres long, one metre wide, 100% that there was no mine within that path. So the people could be rescued that were injured in minefields and the doctors then would walk down the path. So, and a lot of my training now comes from this whole project because I learned so much in that time of, you know, training dogs, but one of them was the clicker. And what we did was train the dogs to touch its nose on the end of a touch stick. It's actually a mine product with a cork on, but a touch stick, and then follow the touch stick in a zigzag pattern at the handler's feet, one meter wide, zigzagging down the path for 50 meters. But I realized, right, to teach the dog to put its nose on the end of this mine prodder with a cork on the end, that clicker thing I saw two years ago on a video is what I need to do. And I, that was really my first application of clicker, and I loved it. It worked yep. an absolute treat. But at the time, I was only using it for that one technique. But over the years, I've integrated more into my training. Now, you know, at Lackman, we didn't use clickers, nor with the company I was with in North Carolina. But when I went back to my own training, I really started to integrate markers and clicker into my training for several reasons. And firstly, I click train all dogs I'm going to train if they're my dogs. And I, mm -hmm. even if it's not in their eventual training plan, and I do that for a number of reasons. One is, I think it gets the dog understanding there's opportunities to learn. And it understands as well that it can manipulate the reinforcer, the reward, through its behavior. It doesn't have to wait for me to show it to do anything. It can start throw behaviors out, and some of them might be rewarding or not. And it kind of tunes the mind into, okay, now I can learn, and actually I can do things and get that click to happen and get my reward. So I have some control over this whole learning process. It also teaches them concepts, capture, you know, by marking a certain behavior, luring, and then I'll mark it. So obviously it helps concepts of training, if you like. And it gets that dopamine actually starting to run through their brain and that we know increases motivation and learning, etc. So I think it sets dogs up to learn. And typically what I do is I click a train and then I teach three behaviors using the clicker so that when we go into training training, I already know that the dogs are primed to learn. But also it gives me a tool in the toolbox if I ever need the clicker later on, even if I don't intend to use it. But generally yeah. in my training, I use it. Yeah, sorry. Like you said, like you said is... It allows you to capture very specific behaviors at critical moments of time that there's no way that you're going to be able to deliver reward, you know, humanly possible to make that connection as good as you can with the use of an audible marker. You know, and, and I, like you, I use clicker and then I fade to a verbal only because of the reality, as we both know, is, you know, when majority of handlers forget to bring the reward to their training problem, let alone remember to bring the clicker with them. <laughs> so the uh, aspect of that is I just I just use, you know, I, I start and I use and I transition from I fade the clicker out and then just have my verbal mark as my terminal bridge. W with all that said, is it's like I said, it, it doesn't surprise me, you know, with the amount of resistance sometimes there is to things like that and 
the misunderstanding many have that comes to it, which is, oh my gosh, the dog is leaving source to come to you for reward. And, you know, people like you and I just quickly explain what classical conditioning is. And then you, you start seeing their arguments dwindle away when you start using the science behind it to explain what's happening. And then there's, you know, one of the big wigs in the industry is always like, oh, hell no, I'll never let my dog leave odor in order to get paid and blah, 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 blah. Oh, I've seen dogs used that have been marker trained and all they do is nose touch and leave. And as you know, I've said before in the podcast and I've said in, on social media posts, you know what? Crappy training is crappy training no matter what system you use. So if your system is inconsistent or doesn't reinforce the right thing, of course you're going to see something that you don't want or you're going to get undesired behaviors because at the end of the day, you get what you reinforce. And if your reinforcement isn't timed correctly or it's not communicated properly, you're going to have these errors. It isn't the system, if marker or the or bridge training, as it's technically called, is so bad or isn't smart or it has these problems, why does every other animal training system in the world use it? Why do zoos use it? Why do mammal trainers use it? Why do you know other dog training systems use it? It's because it actually works. It's effective and efficient. And that's where I think sometimes we, we lose the concept is we're not saying another way doesn't work. We're just saying there's an efficiency to this system. And you do have to understand why you're using it and the timing of it. And if you've accomplished that, which isn't that hard to do, it is one of the best resources to communicate to your animal that I can think of. Yeah, I think you know, as you said, it marks an exact behavior. And when I'm developing a response or odor recognition or anything, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to mark at the exact moment that I want the dog to know that is what I'm looking for. And you can obviously teach duration. And for imprinting, you know, again, I know it's the incorrect term, but that's the term I use. For imprinting a new odor on target, Literally, it takes three sessions because dog can put his nose in a mason jar, I click, and it knows. Okay, that is now a rewardable behavior. That is now something that I need to recognize and respond on. And the whole process goes extremely quick. But also, when you talk about you know students forgetting their, their clicker, <laughs> I always carry one and I have them around the training room because mm -hmm. if the students forgot and somebody said, oh, I forgot my clicker, I can click. Or yep, if here. the student's timing is weak or yep. their reflection is weak or they just, it's too much for them to think about, okay, I've got to look at the dog's behavior, I've got to see this, mm -hmm. I've got to see that. If I can remove the whole pressure of, and I have to click at the right time and say, I'm going to click, you observe what the dog's doing when I click and you will see what behavior we're looking for. Yes. But also, they can concentrate on reading body language. They can concentrate on reading the environment and potentially look at changes of behavior and everything else that's going on and not have to worry about that aspect. And then as they progress and get experience in those aspects, I can then say, okay, now I'm going to add you to actually mark the quickly if you want. So as a training aid, not just for the but for humans, it works great as well. And it's consistent, you know. Yes. I have 500 of them because I have them made with my logo on. Sure. So they're all exactly the same. So, again, I can click, 
for students. I can click my dog. I can pick one up anywhere. You know, I have them in my truck all over the place, and I just use them. Now, I will say I don't take them in the field. When I'm out actually working on a survey or real life, I just reward the dog at source. Um, again, you know, I'm doing conservation environmental type work, not high-risk searches anymore. Um, so I don't have that risk. I can walk up to my dog that's on source, drop his reward in. I, I put a pin flag down if I need to. Or mm -hmm. if you watch some of my videos, the dog responds in a real-life survey 30 meters away from me, and I'll just throw the ball because I'm happy that he's found something. You know, I'm confident mm -hmm. that he's found mm -hmm. something, should I say. And I don't need to go and check source. You know, I just reward it. And then I'll go yeah. up and I'll mark it. I'll carry on again. And again, we go to that variable reward type where I might walk up and give it a treat. You know, I might call it back. I might reward a source. It just never knows. It just knows, okay, this is the behavior I'm doing. Sit and wait, target, until you tell me what's next. Whether that's a click, return, whether it's me verbally calling it back, whether I approach, put a pin flag down, whether I approach, throw the reward in, whether I stay where I am, throw the reward in, whatever it is, you know, it's varied all the time. The dog just doesn't get used to, this is the only thing that happens. It's something's going to happen. I don't know yeah. what, and I don't know when, but it is the target and something's about to happen and whatever it is, I'm going to enjoy it. Yes, that that's the beauty of it. That's that's what I I really love seeing done because, like you said, some dogs need something slightly different than the other dog does, and to have that toolbox with those tools there that communicate and do what's best for the dog is is really the most important thing. Now, conservation, we talked about that being a very quickly growing field. And as we both know, there are many people who want to do work with their dogs, you know, which is why Search and Rescue has a significant level of popularity in the United States because of its volunteer status kind of thing, because people want to do something good and and do something important with their dogs and have a job for their dogs. Now, with the growth of conservation and ecology-type dogs, talk a little bit about some of the popular or more growing fields where you're seeing conservation and ecology-type detection growing. Yeah, I mean, there's major kind of classifications within conservation. And so typically, you could have a dog that's looking for a species of reptile with the aim of data collecting and or collecting those specimens of, of reptiles for a reintroduction program, a breeding program, and some of that nature. You could have dogs that are looking for invasive species of plants, and clearly those non-native or invasive plants are obviously causing issues within the environment, whether that's killing out other more native types of plants, or even poisonous, etc. You could have conservation dogs, such as in Australia, they're looking for the cane toad, and the cane toads are... Uh, hugely invasive species and causing a lot of problems. So they actually use the dogs. And in Florida now, pythons. They actually use dogs to find pythons so that it can eradicate those species. You know, the, the roles within conservation are a lot. Looking at bat mortality at wind farms, and I've seen they train dogs to find fish, certain fish on riverbanks and water bowls off the front of canoes and scat just to find presence of animals and collect the DNA, a scat is poop, and just yep. collect that poop and, and get DNA analysis of which animal is that and what's it eating and how's its health. Whale poop out in um, Washington State off the front of a boat for the same reason, to 
collect DNA and analyze it and get a lot of information on the health of a whale from its poop. So the broad spectrum is huge. And then we go into the environmental work, like oil spills and oil leaks that I do, but there's water leaks from pipes, electrical leaks from electrical cables underground, sewage pipe leaks, the market, if you want to call it that, but the use of dogs yeah. is just huge. You know, and I am a manager of a forum. It's a huge conservation forum, but I do the canine side, the conservation dog side, Wild Labs Net is called, but I, if like moderate it, but I actually am the manager. And I put on research papers that I find from conservation-based canines and it's weekly. There's something coming out, just constant. Dogs finding this, dogs used for that, and how they are saving time, money, effort. They're so much better, 80% better generally than a human survey. You know, so they're proving themselves all the time. And what ecologists obviously are seeing is the benefits of dogs, whether that's I'm going to get a service to actually support me in my project, or people themselves saying, well, I've got a dog. I can take it to work, you know, and it can do the job with me and much more effectively, much, much more efficiently. And then there's obviously the volunteer base where people just want to get involved and actually support their local community, citizen science, if you like, and actually help out. And I've got a couple of projects where we're doing it that way, where we get volunteers to support local projects and support Fish and Wildlife Service or um, San Antonio Zoo and the likes in their conservation efforts, that these people want to do something with their dogs, like the search and rescue volunteers, as you spoke about before, but they've chosen conservation. So the avenues, you know, are growing as our uses of dogs, but more popularity that people are realizing, I could use a dog on this project, or dogs, and I'm going to reach out and actually do this. The problem is, and I've seen it personally, is that all the best will in the world we have had incidents where, in one case, someone trained their dog to find a very rare snake, and in its first field search, it found the snake and probably killed it. And that cut the whole project. The, the guy in charge told me he will never use dogs again on his project, which is unfortunate because the dogs obviously could support what he does, but it wasn't a good in application yeah, mm. for him to actually use a dog. And another one is... There's a photo which is used a lot, unfortunately, to me, is that there was a turtle in a dog's mouth. Well, you know, you're supposed to be looking after the, uh, looking for specimens of this turtle for a reason, and the last thing we need is a dog to pick it up in its mouth. We don't know what cross-transfer of bacteria or disease there is, but equally what injury and stress and everything, or it could not reproduce a clutch of eggs it was whatever you know there's, there's a lot of consequences that so as much as there's a lot of interest to get into this field what we also need is that professionalism that people understand it's not something you can just walk into and do you know you, there is a level of professionalism you need to understand how to deploy dogs how to use them efficiently effectively how to train a dog to be passive but also integration into surveys. How do I data collect? How do I use GPS? How do I write, keep records? How does the scent react when in certain environments? You know, and that, that whole background of being a dog handler is just as important 
for a volunteer as it is for a professional doing it all the time. So there has to be resources out there. And again, it goes back to my book. There has to be resources out there where we're, we are sharing our lessons learned, if you like, our failures in the past that we've spent all this time learning from. We can share that openly and people can learn from that and actually make the whole community a lot better. And that goes all the way back to the start. You know, when we started this podcast, I've said that we want the community to be so much better. And the way we do that is to educate and share our information and be open and honest, you know, and and do what we can to help everyone else. Absolutely. No, it's, I mean, we hit all these great topics and at the end of the day, it comes down to educating ourselves, holding ourselves to the right level and responsibility so that way we can you know, do the right thing by these dogs and show what an amazing service and resource they are. So your book is one of those and it's Imprint Your Detection Dog in 15 Days. It is available on Amazon. Uh, there's a lot of people already buying it. And, you know, we made the post and I put, I shared the post on Canine's Talking Sense. And, you know, I look forward for obviously after this podcast airs, even more people purchasing the book, getting that information that's well needed and totally, you know, up to you. But a lot of times, depending on uh, because of certain guests and information shared, people like to learn visually as much as they do hearing a podcast. But again, totally up to you. Would you be willing to do like a uh, webinar on our platform where we can discuss, you know, any one of these topics to include some of the things that you cover maybe in your book? Is that something you'd be interested in or you would have uh, enjoy doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's important, as I said again, I'll reiterate that I think sharing of information, sharing of lessons learned, so that people don't necessarily make the same mistakes. And uh, I don't know if it's mistakes, you know, or, or failures in training. I don't think we should look at that. But there's certain things that I've done in the past that I would never do again. And, you know, throw an explosive yeah. down the road in a trooper start. Yeah. That, <laughs> you know, if we share that information, others don't have to start where we started. They can start yes. where we are now and improve the dog world. So absolutely, I'd support anything like that that educates people. Yeah, no, I love it. I've had Nathan do four of them. I've had Lucia Lazarowski do four of them. Love to be able to have maybe do a couple with you, whatever we, we can think that works. That, like I said, maybe, like I said, piggybacks off of what you've already started with your book, too. So, and speaking of that, so how do, tell us your website. How do people get a hold of you if they want to ask questions or reach out to you? Yeah, so my website is www.shyron, and that is my pronunciation from the UK, I think it's Kaiwan in the US, C-H-I-R-O-N dash K, the number nine dot com. And my email is paul at Chiron dash K9 dot com. And the book is available on Amazon. So at the minute, it is only available in limited uh, countries in Europe, Japan, United States and Canada, and actually I'm changing that because I've had a lot of interest from Australia, which are huge in conservation dogs, and also India, which, you know, surprisingly, India are growing very quick in the canine use community, but equally in conservation as well, and Amazon will not sell or deliver in those countries. So Hmm. um, I've actually changed 
I've purchased the ISBN. Now I have a private ISBN, so I'm allowed to actually re-list it on Amazon and then list it in those other countries with other providers. The problem is it has to go down for 24 to 48 hours. I can't have two versions of the same book on Amazon. Uh. So with Simon Prince, with his um, feedback, obviously people have been purchasing the book and I don't want to take it offline at the minute. So I'm going to leave it a few days. Yes. Then change it out, and hopefully it will still be on Amazon. It will still be available exactly the same price. I'm not going to change anything, and in the same countries, but it also allows me then to offer it to people in Australia and India that particularly have been in getting touch, and there will be a Spanish version coming, I believe, soon as well. And just talk to someone about translating it for me. Wow, that is awesome. Thank you so much for your time and information. I have a Sneaking suspicion, we'll be doing a podcast again together as well as webinars. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be sharing that information coming forward in the near future. But Paul, thank you again for coming on and and sharing this information and and giving us uh, some of the insights on your book. Oh, I appreciate the invite and I'm honored that I have an opportunity to talk to everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Cameron. Absolutely. My pleasure. And everybody, this concludes this episode of Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. 